World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Think of a robot. Now think smaller, much smaller. Researchers in America have figured out how to turn stem cells from a frog into reliable little machines, blurring the line between biological and mechanical. Big things might come from this small start. And Muay Thai boxing is a relative newcomer to the sports scene in Thailand. But this grappling, kicking, elbowing sport has become wildly popular. Now, a recent tragedy suggests that competitors are starting far too young. But first... Pundits and pollsters were all set for a night of political intrigue as Democrats in Iowa voted for the party's presidential nominee. Instead, they got a delay. Something went wrong with the transmission of the precinct-level results, and as of this morning London time, no one knows who won. That's not to say the chaos itself doesn't have political consequences. It may shape the early part of the race. But it will also add fuel to the argument that the Iowa caucuses the first in America and the most watched, but not the most representative, should be overhauled. By and large, the evening went very smoothly to start off with. Adam Roberts is our Midwest correspondent. There were lots of people caucusing in the main school hall. It was good-natured. There were farmers and factory workers and retirees and students all getting on in a pretty, pretty good mood and huddling and caucusing as they've done every year since 1972. And then things began to go wrong. And so even while in the hall towards the end of the evening, it was becoming clear that the people running the show, and there were five caucuses going on in the same school, were finding it difficult to communicate with headquarters, the Democratic chiefs, back in Des Moines, the capital of Iowa. They had an app that they were trying to use to send the information back to Des Moines. And when that didn't work, they had dedicated phone lines they were supposed to use with a special pin code. But those phone lines were getting jammed up because it seems that all across Iowa, there were difficulties in communicating the results efficiently back to the headquarters. And and what do we know so far about why that is, about what went wrong? Well, we've only got speculation so far, but the results have been very, very delayed in coming out. And the limited reports from the Democratic chiefs is that there are inconsistencies in the results. And that may be the result of some sort of technical hitch, maybe something wrong with that app. Or it could be that the results just don't match up. And there are differences between how many people huddled and supported particular candidates and how many delegates those candidates were eventually awarded. And if those things don't match up, there could be cause for people crying foul and saying this wasn't a legitimate process. And so how might that then be resolved? We do have a paper trail for how every one of those 
170,000 people supported their different candidates tonight. So there is a legitimate paper trail that can be followed. But if they're going to go through that manually, this could be a very long process. We've been hearing all week about how this is just a matter of who stands in which corner of various school halls and so on. Why was an app required at all? Well, the idea for having an app was to make this process smooth and efficient and very quick because they were adding these extra layers of complexity, giving us the numbers of people huddling as well as the delegates. And guess what? By trying to add the technology, they made it a lot worse instead. And so were you able to get a sense of how things stood before things started to go wrong? Will the candidates have left with any sense of how they were doing? So the candidates were waiting tonight for the results to come out because they wanted to take their turns in giving victory speeches or concession speeches. And instead, they had to decide what sort of tone to take as they spoke on TV and spoke to their supporters in Des Moines. And I think we have to do a little bit of criminology and reading between the lines of how they spoke to try to understand how they believe they did. And if you were to look at that... The two candidates who sounded the most self-confident, the most sure of themselves, were Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg. The two of them gave speeches that sounded very close to being victory speeches. Mayor Pete even talked about being victorious as he goes off to, to New Hampshire. Iowa, you have shocked the nation. By all indications, we are going on to New Hampshire victorious. That may come back to haunt him. If he hasn't won in Iowa and he's claimed victory, that could look very bad. On the other hand, Mayor Pete was talking about a historic moment and and sounding rather Obama-esque in talking to his supporters. So I think Pete and Bernie are probably quite happy. Joe Biden probably didn't do very well, but he might be pleased that all this confusion will actually serve as a distraction from his probably not very good result. And and so this chaos, this confusion, then might actually end up shaping the race in a way. It has the potential to have an influence on how the beginning of this race at least plays out. So one potential winner from this evening is Mike Bloomberg. This is the billionaire former mayor of New York who has decided not to contest the first four states in the primary race. He's ignored Iowa, and his strategy is to come in for Super Tuesday early in, in March and try to win by spending a lot of money on advertising in those large and numerous states that are taking part in Super Tuesday. Now, in retrospect, that looks like a slightly better strategy if you've had all this chaos in Iowa, because it makes it harder for a frontrunner to emerge now and maybe leaves some space open for Mike Bloomberg to jump in later. And what about the degree to which this will shape the party's chances as a whole? Well, it's possible that Donald Trump will try to exploit this chaos to suggest to independent voters and others that the Democrats are unorganized and can't be trusted to to get their house in order. But look also at the turnout in Iowa. That's been rather hidden by all this chaos, but only 170,000 people came out. Now, that's just about the same number who came out in 2016, when supposedly voters were very unhappy with the candidates they had on offer. That does not suggest we're back in the territory of 2008 when 240,000 people turned out and people were so excited about Barack Obama. So it looks like even if you hadn't had the chaos of tonight, there would have been reasons for the Democrats to be worried about what the Iowa caucuses were showing them. Iowa might be small, but its results matter. The state has a strong track record of picking presidential nominees. So for decades, Iowa has played a really outsized role in America's presidential primaries. Charlie Wells reports for The Economist. I think it really boils down to the fact that Iowa's primary comes first. 
Candidates who do well there end up gaining momentum, and that can really propel their campaigns forward. So, you know, Hillary Clinton won Iowa in 2016. Join me. Let's go win the nomination. Thank you all, and God bless you. And Barack Obama said that winning Iowa during the 2008 primary season was the best night of his political career. We are ready to believe again. Thank you, Iowa. And actually, every Democratic primary candidate who's won in Iowa since 2000 has gone on to become the party's nominee for president. On the flip side, candidates who fare poorly may find themselves starved of media attention, donations, volunteers. It doesn't look good if you don't win Iowa. And I think this has been a debate that parties and the country has had for quite a while, but is particularly salient this year. And that's that Iowa doesn't necessarily represent the United States as a whole. It's a very small state. It's white. It's old. It's quite rural. And there's been significant debate this year over whether it's fair that Iowa gets to set such an important tone for the rest of the primary when other states, which look a little bit more or perhaps a lot more like America, don't necessarily have as much influence. Last night's events are likely to feed into such debates. This is going to be another nail in the potential coffin of the Iowa caucuses. A lot of people in the Democratic Party were very unhappy with the caucuses anyway. We've already had today the governor of Illinois suggesting that instead Illinois should be chosen as the first race of the season because it's a much more typical state with a much more typical national demographic profile. And so there will be a lot of talk in the coming weeks and months about scrapping the Iowa caucuses. But for now, you have to await the results of this one. Well, we'll have to wait. Potentially, it'll come later today or it may come later this week. But either way, there's going to be a lot of unhappy people who felt it should have come a lot earlier. Adam, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Iowa's reputation as a political launchpad dates back to Jimmy Carter's presidential run. This week's Checks and Balance podcast explores the history of the Iowa caucuses and how much they've mattered in American politics. To hear more, listen and subscribe to Checks and Balance from Economist Radio, wherever you get your podcasts. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Every day, in our homes and offices, as well as in our motor cars, hundreds of these little robots are doing more things for us than we realize, taking care of the routine tasks and leaving us free to live and work and play in greater ease and comfort and safety. Robots come in all kinds of shapes and sizes and perform a staggering variety of tasks. But from factory line mechanical arms to humble autonomous vacuum cleaners, these machines do have one thing in common. They're predominantly made of metals and plastics. We think of robots as mechanical, solid things, never as biological devices. Paul Markilly is The Economist's innovation editor. 
But researchers in America have worked out how to use unmodified biological cells to make a sort of organism that, in fact, is a robot and can do a variety of jobs. Moreover, those robots could be made to be able to reproduce themselves. Well, but this is the kind of tinkering that scientists have been doing with life in ever more elegant ways recently, right? Sure, you could play around with the DNA through genetics. In the old way, you do it through plant breeding, or today you'd do it with other techniques. But this is different. You're not creating a, an organism as such. You're taking the building blocks of an organism and putting them together in different ways, in a way designed, in this case, by a supercomputer. Talk me through it. How does a supercomputer interact with cells to give us a robot? Well, first of all, the researchers at the University of Vermont and at Tufts University use a supercomputer to design what an organism might be like in order to do a particular job using the abilities of various cells, in this case, from an African frog. And then they set out to build that organism from those specific cells, in this case, stem cells. One sort of cells would provide a structure, another sort of cells which would turn into cardiac cells, contract and expand, and they can actually be used to provide motion so the thing can move around. They design, basically, a little cellular organism that could push pellets around the dish. So you start with the intended purpose and let the computer figure out what agglomeration of cells would need to make that happen. Indeed, because a computer, as many things do today, learns as it goes along. You try one thing, that doesn't work. You simulate another thing, that doesn't work. Then you build things that look like they work, and you take from those those that will work and feed it back into the system. So you end up with a very powerful design tool to build a robot, albeit a tiny little one in this case. So they've come up with a purpose and then a plan, but what do these things actually look like when they're made? Well, at the moment, if you look down a microscope, you see this little blob and it could push pellets around. But it pushed those pellets around as you designed it to do so. And in a sense, that makes it a robot. They're made by microsurgical techniques, by somebody looking down a microscope and using tiny tweezers to stitch these different arrangements of cells together according to the computer plan. And when they're done, what do these things even look like? A little tiny collection of cells in a small dish that, again, you might need to look down a microscope to see. But they're capable of pushing pellets around and organizing themselves to push these pellets around. They're not programmed in the sense with electronics. What they're done is their design is such that that is what they do. They're designed to do that and they do it. Okay, but pushing pellets around in a dish doesn't sound enormously exciting. What's in prospect? Well, maybe if you used stem cells from a patient, for instance, to make a version of such a robot, you could inject those cells inside a person to, for instance, remove plaque from the inside of their arteries if they were suffering from disease, or in fact, hunt out cancer cells. They could do little things like that, little robots that could uh, perform specific tasks. And once they've done their job, they die because they don't particularly have very long lives. They can't be fed as such. They have a certain amount of nutrient in the liquid they live in. But once they're done, they're done. Is there not a route to do the same thing and get the computer to figure out a plan that involves a, a longer lifespan or more utility? Yes, there is. I mean, they might be able to make them live a bit longer, but they also might be able to make them reproduce themselves, divide themselves into two. So from one makes two. And that has a particular use if you were trying to use swarms of these little biological robots. For instance, if you put them in the ocean, they could go around and gobble up tiny bits of plastic, which is something of increasing concern. Why shouldn't I be worried that efforts of this sort kind of get out of control if these things can self-replicate and, and presumably increase massively in number? 
Well, you should indeed be worried. Indeed, the scientists are doing this work have their own concerns and they say they will need to work with regulators to consider how such biobots or xenobots, as they call them, will be designed and used in the future. So they're, they're very aware of the ethical and risks associated with this and, and think that they're going to have to work with policymakers to determine how this work can proceed in the future. Whenever we talk about technologies like this, there's always this, oh, but we're, we're playing God arguments. Do you have a view on that? I think it's more like we're playing Lego. You're taking building blocks, putting them together in a different way and coming up with something that works. The definition between, you know, what is a living robot and what is a piece of plastic and metal with lots of electronics in it is getting fairly undivisible, in, in, I think. And so it's becoming thinner and thinner to the extent that you might find the even hybrids of these things emerge. So you might find something that's part biological and part mechanical in the future. These kinds of demonstrations, often very early stages, I mean, do, do you think that we'll get into that slightly thornier land soon? I fit a little bit away because the regulatory thing will kick in and, and people will be concerned before you start injecting these things in people or releasing them into the environment. So for the moment, for the next few years, I think you'll see these things pushing particles around in petri dishes and maybe doing other small acrobatic acts as scientists get increasingly on top of the technology. Paul, thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure. Like ice hockey in Canada or cricket in India, Muay Thai boxing is a verified national obsession in Thailand. There are dedicated gyms in most neighborhoods, stadiums and arenas in every big city, and live events broadcast on national television almost every day. The sport is known locally as the art of the eight limbs, because unlike in Western boxing, Muay Thai competitors are allowed to strike with their feet, shins, knees, and elbows, as well as their fists. Plenty of Thai families allow their children to compete. It's a badge of honor as well as a potential source of income. But a recent tragedy has raised concerns about the dangers of entering the sport too soon. So in 2018, a 13-year-old boy called Anucha Thathako died after fighting in a Muay Thai match. He was punched five times in the head by his opponent and fell to the floor. He was later rushed to hospital and died of a brain hemorrhage. Amy Hawkins writes about foreign affairs for The Economist. It wasn't just that fight that killed him. It turned out he had fought in over 170 matches since the age of eight. Lots of videos of his fight went around social media and caused widespread criticism. This came amidst a debate in Thailand about whether or not boxing for under 12s should be banned. So it seemed in 2018 amid the outcry that his death would change everything. And, and so did it? It did not. There was a bill in the Thai parliament to amend the Boxing Act, which would ban boxing for under 12s and rule that people aged between 12 and 15 had to wear protective headgear. But there was widespread opposition to this amendment in the Muay Thai community, and many said that it would spell the end of Muay Thai in Thailand if such a ban were to take place. Why, though? Why would taking kids out of this undermine the sport? Advocates argue that it's necessary for kids to start very young in order to become professional. And they say in any sport, you have to start young to have a chance at top-tier success. So the government has basically gone quiet on this issue and the practice has gone on as normal and the government has not taken a line on it. 
And so what is as normal? I mean, how many kids are we talking about here? Well, it's really hard to get good numbers about this because so much of the fighting goes on, like I said, in villages where they might not be officially registered. But Gong Sak Yodmani, the head of the Sports Authority of Thailand, says that there are 635 registered fighters under 15. Lots of other people think this is a wild underestimate, and some people say that the number training informally might be as high as 100,000. And so what's the attraction for these kids, just that it's a very popular sport, it seems a, a, a good, a fun, and honourable thing to do? Yes, yeah, so there's that. It's fun and honourable, and it's a part of Thai tradition. But I think the main attraction is that for lots of poor children, it's a route out to poverty. So at the start of the career, they might earn up to $10 for a match, and that can go up if they become professional fighters, and it can go into the thousands of dollars. But if you're starting as young as eight, I mean, that, that cannot be good for a, for, a, for a developing kid. Yes, exactly. Lots of doctors and child health specialists say that the practice of child boxing should be banned. There was a study in 2018 that found that children who competed in Muay Thai matches had lower IQs than average, and the longer they've been fighting, the lower their IQ was. It also increases the risk of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's later in life. And the lead author of that study said that it was a form of child abuse to use child boxers in Muay Thai matches. That message has not got through to the community that, that supports the sport. No, it hasn't. So the people who support the sport, there seems to be a kind of traditional belief that it actually strengthens kids and gives them stronger bones if they start young. Other people argue that it deters children from crime and drugs and it teaches them discipline and respect from a young age. Another reason why the sport persists is that it's very popular amongst tourists. So going to see a Muay Thai match is one of the most popular activities. The Tourism Authority of Thailand promotes it really heavily and um, at many matches. The fact that it's child fighters isn't explicitly advertised, so you wouldn't go and say, hey, I want to see some children fighting. But the weight categories do give a clue. So, for example, Anucha, the 13-year-old who died within the under 41 kilograms division and other categories will be as low as 29 kilograms. So they kind of give the clue as to the age of the fighters. And all things considered, it looks like it's going to continue. Yes, it looks like it's going to continue. Amy, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Seven in ten full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company.